to joy. I, as I think about this church, I can't help but think about the faithfulness of this church to support us. And uh, I know, I think I've been coming to this church over 20 years, brother. It's been a long time. And a lot of us are growing older together. Amen. And uh, so I, I just want to thank you, take time to thank you for your continued support to our ministry. Everything we do, uh, you are part of that. Ministered in many countries, equipping pastors, teaching pastors, taking books to pastors, training them overseas in many different countries. And as Pastor Rick said over the last two years, it has been different for all of us. And certainly in our ministry, our, our meeting schedule isn't as, I guess, as uh, is, is, uh, much as it used to be uh, as far as being on the road. But uh, we are still on the road next in a couple of weeks. We'll be on California in a couple uh, for a couple of meetings out there in churches, and uh, so God is attending, it seems, to pick things back up. We've been doing a lot of counseling, and if I, I know I've sent letters to churches and stuff, but we've seen God do some amazing things, really, through the counseling sessions that we've had, and Debbie has finished uh, with another lady writing a new book, and I'm doing a lot of other things with the time, extra time we have. So we, we do appreciate your prayers and covet your prayers and pray you continue uh, certainly to pray for us. We would appreciate that so much. I want you to turn in your Bible this morning to Song of Solomon, and we're going to kind of conclude this whole teaching on the Song of Solomon this morning. And I want to pe- uh, preach a message entitled, What is Love? What is love? And uh, certainly, I think if I was going to try to give an answer uh, to the question of what is love, uh, this would be one of two passages in the Bible I would turn to, the other being 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is the love chapter. But this passage that we're going to share with you this morning uh, certainly is dear to my heart and I think is a powerful passage. And I hope that you can uh, see what God wants you to see and understand what God wants you to understand from this passage. If you do, I think it'll be life-changing. I really do. It's, a, it's just such a wonderful, wonderful passage. So Song of, uh, Solomon chapter 8 and verse 5, and I'm going to ask you if you would, in honor of the Word of God, if you would stand, if you're able to physically do that, as I read the Word of God this morning, to give honor to it. This is God's holy Word. This is His living Word to us. Amen? And so I'm so thankful for that. Song chapter 8, verse Five. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I raised thee up under the apple tree, there thy mother brought thee forth. There she brought thee forth that bare thee. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as a grave, the coals there are coals of fire which hath of most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would be utterly contemned, or that word means despised. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on his word. If you're standing next to your husband or wife, your family, if you want to hold hands, that would be, I think, certainly appropriate right now. Father, we... Thank you for your word. It is your revelation to us, and we thank you, God, for the word that we've been able to go through this weekend and this conference and this beautiful song. You declare it the song of all songs, the most beautiful song that's ever been written. And Lord, I thank you that at the curtain call, 
at the end of this song, Father, that you give us these verses, that give us a wonderful understanding of what you say love is and what love should mean to those, certainly in marriage, and how we can stay and have a God-honoring marriage and love relationship. Father, I pray this morning for every couple here today that hears these words, that they would not just hear them but apply them to their marriage. I pray for every single here today that's looking forward toward marriage and pray, God, that uh, you would speak to their hearts and help them better understand what marriage should look like, what love should look like in a relationship. And, Lord, I pray, God, for those who may be in this building this morning who have never experienced your saving love. Father, they've never yielded by faith and trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. I pray, God, today they might be granted from you the gift of faith to believe and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And today might be the day of their salvation. Father, we give, Father, this time to you. And I want to thank you in advance for all that you're going to do here today. For we pray, we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. And you can, you may have a seat. Several years ago, I came across a question that was asked to young children. It's certainly very appropriate in the subject that uh, we're dealing with here this morning. And they were asked the question, what does love mean? And I want to give you some of the answers this morning as part of the introduction to what I want to share with you today. Rebecca, age eight, said, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Billy, age four, said, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. That's pretty powerful, amen? I like that. Billy, age four. <laughs> Carl, age five, said, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. (laughs) Well, that's a good one, too. Danny, age seven, said, love is when mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. I really like that one. Debbie knows why, because I'm a coffee drinker. Emily, age eight, says, love is when you kiss all the time. Then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together, and you talk more. My mom and daddy are like that. They look gross, though, when they kiss. (laughs) Love it. Chris says, age seven, love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says he is handsomer than Robert Redford. For those who know who Robert Redford are, Karen, age seven, says, when you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. You know, as cute as all these children's definitions of love are, perhaps you've been married for a while and you're sitting here this morning and you can relate more to what rock singer Pat Benatar's song is titled, Love is a Battlefield. (laughs) Unfortunately, some may be here today, and you may feel like love is a battlefield. You've experienced seasons of tender and sacrificial love and affection, but also seasons of being provoked, feeling unloved, and even deeply hurt. And you would say, yeah, this thing of love, it all sounds good with the kids said, but for me, love is more like a battlefield. 
Another definition of love comes from, surprisingly, martial artist Bruce Lee. And I like his definition. He says, love is like a friendship caught on fire. I love that. In the beginning, a flame, very pretty, often hot and fierce, but still only light and flickering. As love grows older, our hearts mature and our love becomes as coals, deep burning and unquenchable. I'm not sure if Bruce Lee ever read the Song of Solomon, but friendship caught on fire is a good description of the love that we've been looking at all weekend in the Song of Solomon, which is the most beautiful love song declared by God that's ever been written. As the couples and singles that who attended the conference this weekend have seen in the Song of Solomon, God gives us a beautiful glimpse into the relationship of two lovers, Solomon and his bride, a country girl called the Shulamite. We've looked at many different scenes throughout the song, which includes their courtship, the wedding processional, the day of the wedding, intimate scenes and the night on their wedding in the bridal chamber. We see them, like most married couples, having conflict. We spend some time looking at scenes of conflict and and a biblical model of resolving that conflict from the song. And the song all throughout it has wisdom, so much wisdom, for singles who are looking to get married. And in our text this morning, we see them walking hand in hand down the road, possibly returning from a romantic getaway. The chorus in the song, who are called the Daughters of Jerusalem, make a declaration that I think sounds like the introduction of a bride and groom at a wedding reception, we might say. And they say this in verse 5, Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? This isn't the first time this chorus has asked this question. This is actually the second time. In the song, we've heard this exclamation, Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness? The first time was back in chapter 3, where it describes the bride coming in a magnificent bridal procession to meet Solomon on their wedding day. The chorus looks out and they see the bride being carried on a raised couch by four men on poles. They see the incense burning. They see the flowers on the highway. The highway is paved with flowers. And she's being brought through the wilderness to the palace on the day of the wedding. But in this scene, they're no longer single. She's married to her beloved and he's walking beside, she's walking beside him and she's leaning over on him. I know some of y'all can relate to that as you go on walks and your wife leans over on your shoulder and you just have that time you're kind of walking up the road. And that's a picture that we're seeing here now. They're walking through life side by side, leaning on each other's love, and they're growing old together. As they're walking, we're given wonderful, many wonderful descriptions or images that really define, I think, what true love is like or what true love is. And the first one I think that we see in this passage is love is a journey. Love is a journey. As they walk past an apple tree, it reminds Solomon of their wedding night, and he says to her, I raise thee up under the apple tree. You see, love is a journey from loneliness, emptiness, and chaos into a new life of blessing and a new life of hope. 
Now, you might be thinking, as I read that passage, I raised thee up under the apple tree, Solomon speaking to his wife, what in the world is he talking about anyway? I believe that Solomon is thinking back to their wedding night in the bridal chamber when he said to his bride in Song of Solomon chapter 2 and verse 2, As a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. She was feeling very insecure, and she compared herself as the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley, or a common meadow flower. And Solomon responds to her, Honey, you're not like any common meadow flower. Listen, you're like a lily among thorns. These other girls don't compare to you. So is my love among the daughters. And his bride then, she responds back to him in verse 3 of chapter 2, As apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. And in describing the love they experienced on their wedding night, Solomon uses the word raised, that is the same Hebrew word as awake that the Shulamite bride uses three times throughout the song when she says in chapter 2 and verse 7, after they have experienced a time of intimacy together, she says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that you stir not up nor awake, here's that word, my love, Till he please. What she warns the daughters of Jerusalem not to do until they are married, that is to awaken sexual passion, is exactly what she did at the right time after she was married. So because they waited until they were married, their first union is a joyful memory, not one of guilt, not one of shame, not one of regret. Solomon adds these words, and back to chapter 8 and verse 5, There thy mother brought thee forth, there she brought thee forth that bare thee. So to Solomon, the apple tree is a poetic reminder of a solid and fruitful marriage. Metaphorically speaking, we might say it's a family tree, the place where mothers go into labor and give birth to their children. Philip Ryken says, soon it would be time for another mother to go into labor and give birth underneath the apple tree where it started out as a romance would become the rising of a generation. And God's intended progression of life, I believe, is captured in this single image, this journey of love. That is, love is a journey that leads to marriage, that leads to marital intimacy, that leads to having babies. Amen. That's God's divine order. When I say that, I can't help but think back to a little song I used to sing, and we would tease each other as a kid with. You probably know this song. We could sing it like this for Rick and Paula. Rick and Paula sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G, amen? First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes babies in the baby carriage. Now, that's a kid's song, but listen, it's a lot of truth in the way that should happen, Amen? First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes babies in a baby carriage. Boy, that needs to be sung again in our culture today, amen? Not the reverse order. But not only is love described as a journey here as we open up this passage, but love is defined or described as a seal. As the bride describes an affirmation or desires an affirmation of her husband's love, she makes a very poetic request. She says, set me as a seal upon thine heart, and as a seal upon thine arm. A seal in that day was a person's most prized possession. 
It was a type of signet that left an impression denoting authority, denoting ownership. You can think of a seal where they would take wax and they would impress that seal onto sealing a letter denoting that that letter belonged to someone. It was private and it gave authority or ownership of it. In their their culture, if you wanted to steal someone's identity, you didn't steal their credit card, you stole their seal. Just to kind of give you an idea. And these seals that they had there many times were cylindrical and would often be hung around the neck or hung around the wrist of the owner of the seal to protect that seal from being stolen. And Solomon most likely had such a seal around his neck as they're walking down the road or around his wrist or around his wrist. And when she looked at it, it reminded her of these requests. You might say, but what is she really asking for? Her desire is to be imprinted or engraved upon his heart and arm, expressing ownership of her as Solomon's most prized possession. The seal would function the same way that we might say wedding rings function today. It would show that she belonged to him, and she belonged to him because of their vows of covenant matrimony. So first she says she wants to be engraved or be a seal upon his heart, indicating unconditional covenant love. Knowing that her name is sealed upon his heart assures her of his constant loyalty and his constant affection toward her. Her second request is to be sealed upon his arm. The arm indicates power, strength, and security. Many times a wife will take her husband by the arm, and that's really kind of what she's asking for. I want to be secure in your love. I want to be secure in your power, your strength, your protection. She not only wants his inner love, but also to be borne up in his arms and comforted by his strength. If she is sealed upon his heart and arms, she is continually in his thoughts and in his actions. This is a beautiful picture of the love that every wife desires from her husband and the loving devotion of a husband who responds to his wife's desires. Shulamite desired that Solomon be sealed in her heart that he be inseparably linked to her in his attitude and in his devotion to her. But also she would be sealed uh, in his arms so that there would be no doubt in the public's mind that Solomon was her man, that he belonged to her. The seal was twofold, we might say, inner feeling and outer behavior. What a beautiful picture of marital love. And folks, let me just remind you here this morning, this is a love that we have with our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are sealed upon his heart, amen? We're constantly, I thank God that we're constantly on his mind, in his thoughts. He is continually interceding for us before the Father. He promises that he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us. No one can take us out of his hand. Then like a defense attorney who is providing evidence to prove her point, the Shulamite continues by giving additional images and descriptions of love that constrain her to ask for these two seals, to be sealed upon his heart and to be sealed upon his arm. So she moves on to the next image in verse 6 and says, Love is strong as death. Love 
is strong as death. She is saying that death is the only image powerful enough to be compared to her love. Why would she say that? Why death? Because death is unavoidable. Unless Christ comes back, we'll all pass through death. Amen? It cannot be ignored. We'd like to ignore it, maybe, but we cannot ignore it. It is final. It is irreversible. Death ends physical life and abandons those that are left behind. But folks, I'm so thankful to say here this morning, but love is stronger than death. Because true love abides in the lover's heart after death of the one whom they have loved. Love withstands separation, and love withstands even death. The greatest love of all, that of Jesus Christ, conquered death, folks. And will never be separated from him because his love, excuse me, is stronger than death. I remind you of the verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 5. Where Paul said, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus' love is more powerful or has victory over death. Love, his love, never fails. The Shulamite continues, and it's such a beautiful passage. Love is stronger than death, but here's her next image. She says, love is jealous. Look at verse 6 in the third part of that verse. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. Now, we usually think of jealousy as a negative emotion. We think of it as a refusal to share something that should be shared with someone. But let me just say here this morning, some things in life are not meant to be shared. For example, if the government came and said, can I borrow your children for a few years, which they'd love to do right now today, you would probably say, absolutely not. I would hope you would say that. And you might say, why is that? Because you're jealous over your children, amen? You have a jealous love over your children. We don't want to share the privilege of parenting our children with the government. We want to make sure that they are parented correctly. We want to raise our children. God gave those children to us. We love those children dearly, and so we don't want to give them to someone else. In the same way, we're jealous in marriage. In marriage, you belong exclusively to your spouse, and they belong exclusively to you. Even as we sang this morning, amen, Jesus belongs to me and I belong to him. You know, what a great song that is, really ties right in with the Song of Solomon we've been teaching this weekend. As the Bible says, the two become one flesh. So it's not appropriate to share your wife or husband with someone else of the opposite sex. I'm not going to share Debbie with another man, and Debbie doesn't want to share me with another woman. You shouldn't want to share your husband or wife with someone else, that one you love, that way. You're jealous over that love. In fact, in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14, the Bible says that one of God's names is jealous. God is a jealous God. He's a jealous lover. God continually woos us. God continually romances us to himself. He's jealous of our love. He calls it adultery or idolatry when some of the lovers take his rightful place in our life. That's the description he gives of it. His love is an unyielding, unrelenting, passionate love for us. 
demonstrating the same power that the grave holds over its captive. His love insists on complete devotion for our good and for his glory. And this divinely jealous love gives each spouse security and protections from outside threats that seek to destroy it. This kind of divinely jealous love does not strive to control the object of the love, that is, the husband or wife, but provides unyielding devotion for the good of the one that's being loved. So she says, love is stronger than death, and love is, my love is a jealous love. But she goes on, and she's not finished. She continues to make her case by saying in verse 6, the coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. And that is, she says, love is a divine fire. The Shulamite bride describes the power of love using the analogy of hot coals that have a most vehement flame, a raging flame that burns within her soul for her husband and within his soul for her. This statement, a most vehement flame, literally means the fire flame of Jehovah God or the flame of the Lord. And this is really the only direct reference to God's name in the Song of Solomon. But she's saying, my love is a divine fire. It's friendship or companionship on fire. When I think of that, I can't help but remember a time when we lived in Kingsport, Tennessee, now live in Lexington, Kentucky, but there was an old ugly building sitting down below our house. There used to be a little store, and we got the fire department to come and burn that building down. And we literally lit that on fire, and the firemen were there, and I never have watched a fire that close up before. I mean, that house was just flaming up, going up 50, 100 foot, it seemed like, and I could see the electric lines that were 30, 40 yards from this building. I could hear the insulation on those lines sizzling. That fire was so hot. I could see the leaves on trees crumpling up, drying up and withering because the fire was so hot it was burning those leaves. And this is the image that comes to my mind when I read this verse. God's love is like a raging fire that consumes imperfections and leaves a much purer specimen behind. The result is death of self that allows you the freedom to love completely and unconditionally. This love consumes all that is ugly and replaces it with the beauty of God's holiness. This love is so powerful that it does not let up until everything in its path is devoured by it. This type of committed covenant love is the greatest force known to man, and when manifested in marriage, creates a pure relationship untainted by distractions that can diminish the beauty of that marriage. Shulamite reminds us that the flaming love she shares with Solomon finds its source in none other than Jehovah God. What a wonderful thing. That at the curtain call of this song, she brings us back and she says, the reason we can love each other, the way we love each other, the reason we can express our love to each other, the reason that we can forgive each other, the way we forgive each other is because our love is a love that is founded, sourced in the divine love of God. 
Our love is a friendship on fire. Our love is a love that is a divine fire. She's describing their marriage in a beautiful, beautiful way when she says this. And she's not talking about a feeling, but a fire that is lit within your soul by God. Only God can light that fire that enables you supernaturally and sacrificially to die to self and love your spouse that way. And maybe you're here and you've never experienced such a fire in your marriage or the fire that was once flaming in your marriage is, you might say, preacher, it's only embers right now. It's not really a fire. It's kind of gone down to embers. Perhaps your attempts to express this kind of love to your spouse have received an angry response or maybe even a cold shoulder. There are times in every marriage where the fire seems to have grown cold. Certainly that's true. We are two sinners who live with each other in a very close space and we can easily, as many of you know, you've been married, we can easily wound each other. But listen, God can relight the fire in your marriage no matter how cold it is no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what you are facing or have faced. We can once again experience friendship on fire if we allow the love of God to permeate our marriage relationships. She continues by giving us another image, another description. In verse 7, she says, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. Floods can't drown it out. She says love is unquenchable. She states that absolutely nothing can drown out or nothing can silence her love for her lover, for her husband. I remember many years ago, I was doing a revival meeting up in upper New York. And I've never been to Niagara Falls, but I didn't get to go to it then. But I was reading about it, it reminded me of it when I was there. And they had some brochures and things about it where I was staying there that time and during that week. And I read this about the Niagara Falls. It said, The Niagara Falls is one of the greatest natural wonders in the world. For those who have observed, it's an awesome, breathtaking experience. Each second, over 600,000 gallons of water flow over nearly one half mile wide crest line at approximately 20 miles an hour. The force generated by the water would demolish a house into splinters. The noise produced by the falling water is so incredible that it drowns out all other sounds. Observers are forced to direct their attention to its magnificence. Surrounding nature pales in comparison to this splashing display. As a result of harnessing this mighty force, no other natural phenomena in the world produces more electric power. So when the bride gives this statement, and she says, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it out. We could say that the love that this bride is describing is so powerful that it cannot be displaced by the sounds or the powers of waters as magnificent and dynamic as the Niagara Falls I just read about a moment ago. The heat of her love licks up, it evaporates and dispels all thundering streams or even floods that come against her love. Her love is so powerful that it echoes within her eardrums of her heart and continually resounds in the deep recesses 
of her inner being. It seeks out, it searches out every empty crevice and hollow hole within her, replacing indifference and coldness and unforgiveness with the fire of God's love. And such is the power of love between two married people who allow God to permeate their souls with the burning fire of his love. It becomes a fire kindled by the master stoker that cannot be quenched by any flood, any circumstance, any trial, any tribulation that comes their way. This love cannot be extinguished by anything. And listen, I know every couple here, you've gone through trials, you have gone through trials, you are going through trials, or you will go through trials. That's certainly, we know that's true. Ian Dugat aptly states, he says, marriage is not a walk in the park or a pleasant sail on a Sunday afternoon. If you love someone enough to marry him or her, then you would inevitably pass with that person through the turmoil of sickness, conflict, childbirth, or the painful inability to have a child. Many mutual and individual disappointments, brokenness, tears, sorrow, ultimately death itself. Marriage is indeed, as the vows say, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, a sickness or in health, till death do us part. If our love is going to endure all things, we need a love that many waters cannot quench. We need a love that many waters cannot extinguish or put out. Many waters cannot drown out. And that love is only found, listen folks, it's only found in the person of Jesus Christ. In relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, knowing and applying and permeate, letting the love of God permeate our hearts. And if we know Christ, we can say just as nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, no waters can drown out or quench the love that we have as a husband and wife. Nothing can put it out. So when trials come, this kind of love binds a husband and wife closer together instead of driving them further apart. The bride puts an exclamation point on the description of love by saying, love is priceless. Look at verse 7. If a man would give all his substance of his house for love, it would utterly be contemned or despised. You know, years ago, back in the 70s, when I was going to college, I think the Beatles got it right when they sung, I don't care too much for money because money can't buy me love. That's one thing they did get right, amen? And that's kind of what she's saying here. She exclaims, you cannot put a price on this kind of love. You can't buy this love. You can't earn this love. This love is a priceless, precious love. This kind of love is the foundation of a love relationship that Solomon and the Shulamite bride have experienced in the song. It cannot, she said, our love, what we're experiencing, this friendship on fire, you can't buy this love. You might want to purchase it, but you can't. The only way you will ever experience this kind of love is to intimately know God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, this kind of love has already been purchased for you and I by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it cost him his life. Jesus went to the cross to atone for all our sins, for all our failures. He paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we might be able to comprehend the height, the width, the length, and the depth of his love. 
that we might be strengthened in our inner man to have an understanding of that love and live out that kind of love in their life. And especially as we're talking about marriage, loving unconditionally and sacrificially our husband and our wife. This love can't be earned. This love can't be bought. It's offered to us as a free gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is, and I love this, the gift of God. Our salvation to us is a gift from God. We didn't earn it. We didn't do any works for it. There's nothing you can do for salvation. Jesus did it all on the cross. He shed his blood as an atonement for your sin, for my sin. He died. He rose again the third day that we might have a love that is stronger than death. Amen. (laughs) And just like Solomon and the Shulamite marriage found its strength and happiness sourced in God's love, Every marriage here today needs the same supernatural love of God as its foundation. When each spouse knows his love and their marriage is centered on his love, we're sealed on each other's hearts. Our love will be stronger than death. Our love will be a friendship on fire with the love of God, his divine love. No floods or trials or conflict can drown it out. And it will be precious and priceless to us. What a wonderful closing stanza to this beautiful song of songs, which is the most beautiful of all songs, where the Shulamite describes the love that is the foundation of their marriage, of their relationship. Every head's bowed, every eye's closed as we close out here this morning. perhaps